Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Christ Community. It's really great to see all you. We're glad that you're here. And uh, as we open the Bible this morning and, and teach from it, why don't we pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus, we thank you that while we were still sinners, estranged from you, you died for us. And Spirit, we thank you that you lead us away from falsehood and guide us into truth. And we ask for you to do that now for us, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's never better to leave. And for example, a few years ago, my wife and I, we lived in the same, sort of close to the same hometown that we grew up in. So we were only about 15 minutes from both sets of our parents who lived about five minutes apart, and we decided we were going to move to Chicago. So we had to go and deliver the news to them that we were going to now not be 15 minutes from them, but be four hours away from them. And it was hard news to deliver, and it was hard news for them to receive, because it's never better to leave. Unless, of course, you don't like the people you're leaving, but that's another sermon for another day. Well, then fast forward a few years, we're in Chicago, and we sense God's leading to come here to serve two years at Christ Community as a part of the pastoral fellowship, and so then we had to go and deliver the news that now we weren't going to be four hours away from our, our parents, we are going to be nine hours away, and with a grandson involved now in the picture, that was even harder news to deliver, and even harder news for them, for our parents to receive, because it's never better to leave those who love you. Well, fast forward then to about six months ago, my wife and I began to sort of ask the question, what, what might come after Christ Community? What geographical location should we look at? And just out of curiosity, I threw out Portland or Seattle, which would be a full two-day travel from <laughs> our parents. And Misty, my wife, just started crying. <clears throat> yeah, because she's empathetic and cares what other people think, unlike me. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I guess Portland and Seattle are out um, at that point. Because it's never better to leave those who love you. And it's never better for those whom you love to leave. Unless you're Jesus, apparently. But did you catch what he said in, in verse 7? It's one of the weirdest verses maybe in Scripture. Where he says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's better for me to leave. Anybody want to challenge Jesus on that a bit? Question him? Then maybe you're, you're not a Christian, you're a skeptic, and, and you just have a hard time imagining giving faith to a person you've never seen. And if Jesus himself this morning had gotten up to preach, maybe you would believe, but instead you're stuck with me and it's not doing much for you. Right, or maybe you're, you're a Christian and either you have in the past walked through some very dark days or you're walking through those dark days now and you think, yeah, it's, it's definitely not better that Jesus isn't here that what you wouldn't give for him to, to knock on your door, to sit down across from you, to give you hope, to, to speak to you, to know that the person in whom you've given your whole life, whom you have not seen, is really there and really cares for you. And if we think our position is bad, imagine the disciples who hear Jesus say this, and what Jesus had just said, because we're sort of in this, this chapter jumping into the middle of a conversation, and what Jesus had just told his disciples was that they were going to be kicked out of their communities for following him. Their families were going to abandon them, and eventually they were going to be killed and die for their faith. And then Jesus says, but first, before all of that happens, I'm leaving. I'm out. 
And oh, it's better for you to leave. Like, no, Jesus, it sounds like better for you to leave, right? <laughs> and if we think our position is bad, the disciples are in a tough position too, that we all, no matter what stage or position of life you're in, we all need help. So why would Jesus leave? Well, in one sense, he answers the question for us. He tells us, right? I'm going to send you the helper. That's why it's better for you to go away. The helper being another word for the Holy Spirit. And that's where some of us might begin to question that wisdom. Because when we think of the Holy Spirit, maybe some images or some thoughts begin to come to mind initially. That maybe your view of the Holy Spirit's been informed by religious television. And when you think of the Holy Spirit, you just think of people doing very strange things. Or maybe you grew up in the church and the the Holy Spirit was referred to as the Holy Ghost, and it gave you nightmares to which you still haven't overcome. Now, the Holy Spirit can be a confusing topic, and yet Jesus is clear. It's better for us to have the Spirit now than to have been physically present with Him during His ministry. It's to our advantage that Jesus went away. Because we all need help. And Jesus is saying, help is here. But I would argue it's not the help we would expect. And so this morning as we try to unpack what the Holy Spirit is, who the Holy Spirit, what he, what he does, John 16, I think, raises three good questions for us. First, who is the Holy Spirit? Second, how do we know we have encountered the Holy Spirit? And thirdly, finally, how do we know or how can we work with the Spirit? So who is the Holy Spirit? How do we know we've encountered him? And how do we work with the Spirit? So let's start, dive in with who is the Holy Spirit? And Jesus begins sort of this discourse on the Holy Spirit with this this subtle rebuke of the disciples. It's interesting what he says in verse 5. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? He seems perturbed that no one's asked him this. But what's interesting is if you read, if you've read John 13, 14, 15 up to this point, you'll find the disciples actually had asked him that question twice. Jesus, where are you going? But the reason Jesus says, none of you asked me, is because when they asked him, they weren't really asking. It was a protest. Where are you going? What, what is so important that you have to leave me? What do you have to go do? Why do you have to leave us, Jesus? That's what they were asking. They, they didn't really want to know where he was going because they didn't want him to leave. They wanted Jesus for themselves. And Jesus is saying, listen, you don't understand me. You don't understand why I've come. Because if you understood why I've come, you would understand why it's better for me to leave and to send you the Holy Spirit. You would get it, but you don't get it because you're not really asking. The disciples, ultimately, they wanted Jesus for themselves. To to navigate through their own questions, through their own problems, to be near to him, to ride with him and his power. And Jesus says, you don't understand. I have come to do something that you don't get. And so he says, I have to leave, and when I leave, then I can send you the Holy Spirit. And, and so all of that drives some of the question, okay, so why does Jesus have to leave in order for the Holy Spirit to be sent to us? And there's really two answers to that question that we need to, to understand before we dive into the importance of why the Holy Spirit comes. And the first question, or uh, the first answer to the question why Jesus had to leave for the Holy Spirit to come is what Nathan talked about last week from Colossians 2, that Jesus didn't come just to, to, to live on earth and tell us how to live. He went to go to a cross. That to paraphrase Colossians 2, the passage we, Nathan preached from last week, that Jesus went to the cross. He came to earth. He had to go away to the cross to cancel the record of debt that stood against us. 
to nail it to the cross, disarming the powers of this world, shaming Satan and everything evil that you and I might live. And if Jesus did not go away, that record of debt, that record of sin would still be standing against every one of us. That's the first stage of why Jesus says, listen, I have to go away. It's better because I'm going to cancel your debt of sin. But the second answer, which begins to dive into what exactly the Holy Spirit is, is is you and I don't just need help because we're deeply flawed and and need that record of sin um, canceled against us. We also need help because none of us can live the way that we're supposed to live. That none of us love the way we should love. None of us are as generous as we should be, as selfless as we should be. None of us, no matter how hard we try, can live the way we were meant to design to live. And what no one in this room needs is for another person to come and tell you how to live. You already, well, I mean, most of us, I think, in this room, we already know how to live and we can't do it. What we need is a person to come with a power to help us live the way we were meant to. And that's why Jesus says it's better for me to leave. I'm going to go, I'm going to cancel your debt of sin, and then I'm going to send you a power. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who's going to guide you into truth, sanctify you, make you look like me, help you live the way that you were meant to live. Because we all need help to be and to live how we were designed to live. And that's a piece of why it's better for Jesus to live. But we have to be careful because I, like the disciples, so often want Jesus for me. I want him to answer my questions, to to respond to my objections, to to be there and near to me, help guide me through, or or to to keep me free of trouble. And Jesus basically comes and and says to the disciples who have sort of rebuked Jesus for saying that he's going to leave, and Jesus is saying, you don't get it. I have not come to help you manage the problems of your life. I've come to remake you. I've come to remake a world without problems. And that's the point of the the Holy Spirit. That's why it's better for Jesus to leave, to send the Spirit on us. Because he does not just come to help us, to help us feel a little bit better about the world we're in. He knows the world we're in is deeply broken, and he's come to fix it and fix me and fix you. And the only way that can happen is for God's supernatural power to come into our lives and overtake us and, and sanctify us and make us look more like Jesus. But all that begs the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Right, if we had to answer that question, or if I had to answer that question briefly, what would I say? And, and it, Jesus uses a word here. He doesn't just say the Holy Spirit. He uses a word in verse 7, which we've translated as helper in, in 16.7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And the word helper here helps us understand a little bit about the, the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. And I would use three words um, briefly to describe the, the Spirit. The Spirit is first our advocate. The Spirit guides us away from falsehood and into truth. He's a counselor to us. He guides us, points us away from things that would destroy us and to the truth. That apart from the Spirit, most of us or all of us in this room would not be able to see what really gives us life, what really life should be about. And the Spirit points us to the, to the truth, points us to how to live. He's our advocate. Secondly, I would say, that, as, John, as we translate here in John, the Holy Spirit is our help. He's not just an advocate, he's a help. And that we all need help, right? The Spirit knows all of us will get ourselves into trouble. And not just trouble because we sin and do things wrong, but also because this world is a hard place to be. That's why even Jesus, as he does, he sort of rebukes the disciples for being more concerned about them, their relationship or their proximity to Jesus. He does say, 
In verse 6, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And Jesus knows this is, a, this is a hard place to live. And he ends his little conversation on the Holy Spirit, on this, this sort of long discourse, in, in chapter 16, verse three, 33, by saying, I have said all these things to you, basically the last four chapters of John almost. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That Jesus ends by saying, listen, you will have sorrow, you will have trouble, and that's why I'm sending you the Spirit, because the Spirit is going to navigate you through all of it. And remember the context. I mean, this isn't just like, hey, he's going to help you know which job to take, right? Or he's going to help you know, you know, how to treat your kids when they're driving you nuts. It's, it's, it's not just that. It's the, the disciples were about to be in a position where they were going to be killed for their faith, where they were going to be tossed out of their communities, kicked out of the synagogues, which was sort of the churches of their day. And Jesus says, the Spirit is going to get you through all of it. He's going to be your help. And so whatever your trouble is this morning, Jesus would say the same thing to you. Take heart, he's overcome the world, and he sent you help to guide you through whatever it is. This life in this world which Jesus has come to overcome is going to throw at you. So the Spirit is our advocate, he's our help, but finally he's, he's our boldness. The Spirit enables us to give witness to Jesus. And this is the point we can't miss, because the Spirit doesn't just come disconnected from Jesus. If you, and we'll press more into this later, but verses 13 through 15 especially, Jesus says that the Spirit comes to glorify him. The Spirit comes to point people to Jesus, to continue the work of what Jesus did here on earth. And so the Spirit is our boldness to declare to this world what Jesus has done to testify to the work of Christ, that Jesus has, in fact, overcome the world, and that we can have peace in a troubled world, that the Spirit is our boldness to testify that the mission of Jesus did not stop at the cross, but continues to this day. So the Spirit is our our help, our advocate, and our, our boldness, that that's who the Holy Spirit is. But a bigger question, maybe, kind of behind all that, is how do we know we have encountered the Spirit? And there's lots of ways that Christians try to answer that question, and there's lots of ways we could answer that question, but John 16 really gives us the starting point. That this is sort of, you know you've encountered the, the Spirit if you've had these first three steps. And if you haven't, then you can't get to the, the other things I think the Spirit does. But, but John lays these out in verses 8 through 11, or Jesus lays these out in verses 8 through 11, of what, how you can know you've encountered the Spirit. And here's what he says. He says, And when he comes, when the Helper of the Holy Spirit comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit comes, and he comes first to convict. And it's important that we don't miss the definition of this this word, because the Holy Spirit comes to convict all of us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the word convict basically means to shame and to convince of guilt, to expose. The Spirit comes to show us that when it comes to sin, when it comes to righteousness, judgment, all of us are guilty, full of shame, and exposed. That sure sounds better that Jesus left now, doesn't it? We're all filled with shame, guilt. Who wants to amen the Holy Spirit now, right? And yet, this is, this is how you know you've encountered the Spirit. And I, I would frame what Jesus is saying here in, in three ways. That, that first, you know you've encountered the Spirit when you know you are your biggest problem. That Jesus says the Spirit comes to convict all of us 
concerning sin because they, because we, do not believe in him. This is important for us not to miss, and yet it's also kind of, it's kind of humorous. Because the only way I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong is if the supernatural power of God comes in and convinces me. Well, a few of you thought that was funny. I think that's funny. (laughs) This is what it means. Because we we human beings, we're great blame shifters, right? We do something wrong and we say, well, if that person hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done what I did. Well, if, if, or we blame circumstances, right? Well, if that hadn't happened to me, I never would have responded in that way. Or I, I think we always hear people who maybe commit some big public act and they get up and, and they apologize and they almost always say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not the sort of person who does these things. No, you are exactly the sort of person who does these things. Right? Why is it so hard for us to admit fault, to admit blame, to admit wrong? And that's the first way you know you encounter the Spirit. You give up those excuses. You know you are your biggest problem. Not other people, not circumstances. It's not if if all of a sudden the stars aligned, the world was right, suddenly you'd stop sinning, right? It's not because your spouse, if they got their act together, then you'd stop sinning, or your friends, or your kids, or your parents. No, it's you are your biggest problem. And that's the way you've known, you've encountered the Spirit. And what that means more than that is, is the Spirit comes to convict us concerning sin because we do not believe in Jesus, That our greatest problem is that you and I, the reason we sin, the reason that we do wrong, is because we don't believe in Jesus ultimately. That for example, if 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 you struggle to love those who are different than you, that shows that you don't really believe Jesus. That though you were estranged from him, he died for you, going to the cross to save you from yourself. That if you struggle with generosity, it's because you don't really believe Jesus. That though he was rich, became poor. That you, who are poor, might become rich. That you struggle with pride. It's because you don't believe that Jesus, who knows more than all of us in this room put together, used his position and his wisdom and his power to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. That you struggle with anger. It's because you don't believe that Jesus is slow to anger and rich in love, gracious and compassionate, and gave his life for you. That all of us are our own problems because we run away from the very thing we should run towards. And the Spirit points us towards that, points us towards true belief in Jesus, true faith in Jesus, to see we are our biggest problems. That's the first way you know you've encountered the Spirit. The second way is to to know you've encountered the Spirit, is that you start repenting of your good works. This is one of the most interesting things I think that Jesus says. That he says he comes, the Spirit comes, to convict us concerning righteousness, the good things we do. What does that mean? I mean, I think we all agree, yeah, I need to repent of some bad things I do, but why would we repent of the good things we do? Well, let me give you an an example. In college, I had a professor who one day issued a challenge to us. He said, today I want you to go out and I want you to do as many selfless things as you can do in the next, until our next class, which was 24 hours away. So I was like, that's great. Take, take that challenge head on. And literally, as I'm leaving class, someone in front of me, they drop all their books. And I go right and I help them pick up all their books. Send them on their way. And after I was done, I remember thinking, man, I, I reacted really fast. That's impressive. And little things like that kept coming up. And about the, after the fifth time, maybe or so, that that happened, 
you know, helping someone, a little selflessly, no one else saw. I remember just thinking to myself, I've already done five selfless things today. I bet that's more than anyone in my class. In fact, I may be the most selfless person on our campus. Right? And then I realized the point of my exercise, the exercise, why our, our college professor told us to do that. Because my good works just make me worse. I mean, we all know people who the good things they do just make them disdain other people. And maybe it's your politics. You vote a certain way, and everyone else who doesn't vote that way, you think, is a ruin to the country and disdain them as a human being. Or maybe it's your morals. You see people who can't live up to your moral expectations, and you think they just can't get their act together. They're not as strong as you, and they need to figure it out. Or maybe it's your religion. Other people don't believe the same things that you believe, and therefore you're better than them. You're smarter. You got it. They didn't. But you know you've encountered the Spirit when you start repenting of your righteousness. I think it's important here just to, to pause for a minute that maybe, probably if you're not a Christian, this is, the Holy Spirit is probably one of the weirdest things to bring up or talk about. And yet, don't we all believe there's something, there's a person going around telling all of the self-righteous people, which is all of us in this room, telling all the self-righteous people, you're not as good as you think you are. In fact, the good things you do just make you worse. I mean, how much better would our culture be if people had that encounter with God? So the Spirit doesn't just come to say you do wrong. It comes also to say the right things you do make you worse. And finally, the Spirit, if you know you've encountered the Spirit, when you see Jesus for who he is. But the last thing, Jesus says the Spirit comes to convict concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. This last piece, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor is that there's really only two responses you can have to Jesus. But most people want to carve out a third one. And the point of, of I think, what Jesus is saying here is that the Spirit forces you to, to make the call. That the world has made its judgment about Jesus. They thought he was a waste. A joke. They mocked him. They shamed him. They stripped him naked and crucified him. The world and the ruler of this world has made its judgment about Jesus. But the Spirit shows you something else. The Spirit shows us that the greatest instrument and torturous place of death, the cross, is actually the only place where any of us will find life. That The Spirit enables us as Christians to look at the cross, a place of death, and see life. But many of us want a third, we want a third way. We want Jesus just to be a good moral teacher, to be a decent example. And what Jesus is saying here is, is you know you've encountered the Spirit when you've chosen one of those two, two roads. That Jesus e either was a joke and self-deluded, thinking he was dying for the world when he was really just a crazy criminal being crucified, or he really was who he said he was. And the Spirit, when you've encountered the Spirit, either... You fall into that place with the world, judging Christ to be nothing that he said he was, or you worship him as God. And those are the only two choices that, that you're left with. The Spirit comes to convict the world concerning judgment, for the ruler of this world is judge. And I would hope, maybe I'm just, I'm just self-deluded, but I would hope we would hope for the, the second piece to be true, Right? That we all want to believe that the sorrow, the troubles of this world, that someone has taken them head on and overcame all of them. 
That Jesus was not some foolish man going to a cross, crucified by a world that hated him, but he was actually God going to overcome a world that's full of death, sorrow, pain, and trouble. But those are the only two options. Jesus can't be a moral teacher, and you know you've encountered the Spirit when you see Jesus for who he is. And so all of us, we, we need help, right? To, just to see that we have sin that needs to be taken care of, to see that our righteousness doesn't make us better than other people, to see Jesus for who he really was. We all need help, and Jesus is saying his help is here, but not just to make us feel bad about ourselves, right? Not just to show us where we screwed up, but also to make us and help us become who we were meant to be and become, who, how we were meant to live, how we were designed to be. And so that's the, the third piece. How do we work with the Spirit? How do we work with the Spirit to become who we were meant to be? And really verse 13 begins to sum this up, that the Spirit comes to guide us into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. That the Spirit guides the Christian away from falsehood and towards truth. And so how do we work with the Spirit to do that? To guide us, to let the Spirit guide us into truth. Now let me offer three suggestions of action steps, of what we can do as next steps to work with the Spirit. The first thing to do is, is to work with the Spirit to kill your sin. That The Spirit shows me I am my biggest problem, but the Spirit does not reveal to me my mistakes just to make me feel terrible about myself. And the Spirit doesn't just sign light on our darkness to say, well, let's, let's just look at that for a while. Right? No, that's not why. He shows us to lead us into light, to lead us to truth. And I love what a Christian Andrew Murray um, said about this. He says, God never speaks to his people about sin except with the purpose of saving them from it. The same light that shows the sin will show the way out of it. The same power that breaks down and condemns, if humbly yielded to and waited on in confession and faith, will make it possible to rise up and conquer. That's so freeing, isn't it? That God is not some angry parent pointing out everything you do wrong so you can feel terrible about yourself. He's calling out your sin because he's saying, I have something better. That's not truth. That's not life. Let me guide you from that into light, into life. But work with the Spirit to kill your sin. And there's a couple ways to think about this. One is we need to be people who listen to the Spirit. That when you pray, do you, do you have space of just saying, God, show me what I don't see? God, use other people around me to show me what I can't, to show me what I'm missing. Shine light on me. Because, God, it's darkness, and when you, you can't see it when it's, it's dark. Shine light there. But more than anything, the best way to listen to the Spirit is, is to read this book. That, that as Jesus says to his disciples, the Spirit is going to come. He's going to guide you in all truth. He's going to say to you and reveal to you what I've already said to you. And that's really just describing how we got the Bible. Right? The, 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 Jesus came, taught the apostles, taught the disciples, and then they wrote down everything he said. Everything in, in, inspired by the Spirit. So then we have this record of everything the Spirit said to the disciples through Jesus and continues to say to us as a church. It's why we preach from this book every week. We believe it's not just words on a page. It's the Spirit himself speaking guiding us into truth and we have to listen but listen to the spirit but secondly then i would say let the light hurt that if anytime light comes where it's dark it's it's not it's, it hurts for a moment right that anytime someone says something to you that points out a fault that you have it 
our instant reaction is to defend because it hurts. So let me just encourage you when, maybe when your kids call you out on something and they're right, just repent to them. You don't have to defend yourself. It's okay. The light's shining to guide you out of darkness into light. It's okay. It's the spirit. Let the light hurt. Or if a friend or a spouse does the same thing, it's okay. A coworker, let the light in. Let it shine to be guided out of darkness and into truth. So work with the Spirit first to kill your sin. Second, work with the Spirit by serving the mission of Jesus. That as Jesus says in verse 14, the Spirit comes to glorify me, glorify him, glorify Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The whole reason the Holy Spirit has come is to continue the work of Jesus, to continue his mission. And that you can't Expect the Spirit. I think sometimes we think of the Spirit as something individually, by ourselves, in a room. And that's not the primary reason the Spirit came. The Spirit came to continue the work of Jesus, which is why Jesus rebuked the disciples at the beginning of this passage, saying, you don't understand. I'm not here for you personally. I'm here for the world. Don't just want me for you. Want me for the whole world. And to work with the Spirit to serve the the, the mission of Jesus is to want Jesus for the whole world. And I think if there's a a sentence to describe the Holy Spirit, it's that. It's that the Holy Spirit wants Jesus for everyone. That's why he's come. That's why he glorifies Jesus and all that he does. So that every person, every last person who hears the name of Jesus would fall down and worship him. And I think this is also why it was actually better for Jesus to leave. To go and overcome the world. Because now the Spirit has been poured out on hundreds of millions of Christians. Right? The, the, the option one was one man named Jesus to go around and, and say to the world, take heart, I've overcome the world. One man, right? Or instead what we have is hundreds of millions of stories of the Spirit of God poured out on Christians who have stories, who can say, take heart, I have overcome the world. That in this world I have had trouble. My parents abandoned me. My spouse divorced me. I got sick. I faced all kinds of evil. I've done all kinds of terrible things. And none of it matters because Jesus overcame the world in the cross. That the Spirit has literally poured out onto hundreds of millions of Christians. And if you have a better explanation of how the church went from this little room of scared disciples and Jesus saying, and by the way, I'm leaving too, to a worldwide movement on every continent of hundreds of millions of Christians, if you have an explanation for that other than the Spirit, I'm open. Because all of us have a story of how the Spirit came when we needed help and led us away from ourselves and towards Jesus. And all of us should serve the mission of Jesus by telling that story. To not just want Jesus for ourselves. To not make church about coming Sunday morning and getting what I can get. But to make church about the fact that there is a Spirit at work in this world overcoming all of the trouble, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, And I'm a part of that story. So work with the Spirit to serve the mission of Jesus. And finally, work with the Spirit by loving others for their good. Jesus doesn't speak much on this topic here, but the rest of the New Testament sort of, I think, takes what Jesus is saying here and and especially focuses on on this idea of of spiritual gifts. And that's become somewhat of a debated topic in the church, but the point of of spiritual gifts is is clear from Paul and from other places that the point of spiritual gifts are to unify the church to grow us into maturity, into Christ-likeness. And that's an important point for all of us to hear. And and none of us should underestimate the point that if you're a Christian, you're indwelled by the Spirit to love others for their good. 
That Jesus doesn't just send the Spirit on you so that you can be guided into truth or so that you can have a personal experience of God. It's so that you can love others in the church. And don't underestimate the power of that. And don't underestimate the power of being in a community group, of praying for those people that you're meeting weekly with, of encouraging them, of eating with them, of calling them during the week. You have the gift of hospitality and having people over. Don't underestimate the power of that. If your gift is is making people laugh and telling good jokes or cooking a good meal or teaching the Bible or or praying for others, do not underestimate the power of that. Because what Jesus is saying and what Paul will later say in the New Testament is that's the supernatural power of God working through you to build others into maturity and Christ-likeness, to point them to Jesus. Do not underestimate the fact that you need others and they need you to point them to Jesus. It, one of my favorite things to do now is to, to read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my, my son, Isaiah. He's about two and a half. And one of my favorite things to do is whenever Jesus comes up in the story, to point to him and say, who's that? And Isaiah always says, Jesus, Jesus. It's the cutest thing ever, um, at least for me. And, and so I, I love doing that. And, and so a couple weeks ago, we were at a grocery store. And there was, was kind of a long line um, of, of people, and we sort of settled down. And this couple came in behind line, um, behind the line in us. And they were, they were from the Middle East, um, somewhere, didn't speak a, a lot of English, and, and the guy had a, had a good beard, and Isaiah starts smiling at him. And they start smiling back, and Isaiah waves at him, and they wave back. And then Isaiah puts his hand out to the guy. And loud enough for everyone in the grocery store to, to hear, he says, I see Jesus, I see Jesus. Yeah, so he's a pastor's kid, just ignore him, right? Right, and as awkward as that moment was, it's a great illustration, it's a great illustration of what, of what the, the New Testament's driving at with the Holy Spirit. And that's not some cheesy, go be Jesus to other people, but it, it, is, it is a real thought that, that if you're a Christian, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, from death into life, is it working you to love others for their good, to serve them, to encourage them when they're down, to pray for them when there's nowhere else to turn, to invite them into your home? That the point of the Spirit is to point other people to Jesus. And so serve or work with the Spirit by loving others for their good. Because all of us, we all need help. We all need encouragement. We all need to be uplifted when we're down. We all need to know that in this world, we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And Jesus is saying, we need help, and help is here, the Holy Spirit.